Beloved, let's turn in our Bibles to the 8th chapter of the uh, book of Hebrews. 8th chapter, book of Hebrews. Going to read from verse 1 to the end of the chapter. It's only 13 verses. It's not that long. And then we're going to look at it. Today, God willing, I would like to preach from verse 7 to verse 9. I will include verse 6 in my reading of it, or my presentation of it. Um... Yes, so well, hopefully that's what I'd like to do. I might not keep to it, but I want to try to, okay? Let me read it to you. You can follow along in your own Bibles there. Now, the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens, in the heavens, A minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not by man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth he wouldn't be a priest since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. These serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, Be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. And to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant which has been established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he says, See, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, Not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or his sister saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. By saying a new covenant, He has declared that the first is obsolete. And what is obsolete is growing old and is about to pass away. Amen. Amen. If you remember last week when we were talking about this, when when I was preaching, I always have to remember that I'm preaching. We looked at the Jesus being the mediator of the greater covenant. How Those things of the old covenant were but shadows, forms. They were the the image of that which was to come. Which Christ has done in the heavenly places. We saw how by doing so Christ had set us free from the necessity of earthly religion. Of having earthly priests to be our mediator. Of having an earthly temple where we must go and worship Christ has set us free that we might worship him anywhere at any time with anyone around. He has set us free from the conditions of rituals and ceremonies, of sacred spaces. We have become those who might worship in spirit and in truth at any place and any time. Because Jesus Christ is the Lord of space and time. The writer here wants his readers or his listeners to understand that 
Faith in Jesus Christ is something greater than just a system built by man. It's something greater than a denomination. We're a Protestant or a Catholic, a Baptist or a Lutheran. It supersedes earthly limitations. Becomes something internal and no longer simply external. The Christ in his work touches the very inner parts of you. Where in the Old Testament, in the old, under the Old Covenant, we could go and we could offer up our gifts. And regardless of how our lives lived, we just did what was legally required of us. Now, you might argue, and I might argue too, that the law reaches deeper than that. But yet here the writer or the speaker addresses that. That there were limitations. See, a person under the old dispensation, under the old epoch of time, under the old regime, covenant, he could go and offer up his sacrifices, do everything by the letter of the law. Outwardly perfect. Legalistically so. Do you remember that Jesus said to his disciples, to those who were following him, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, unless your righteousness supersedes, goes beyond, is superior to the righteousness of the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees were experts in the law. I mean, these people were anal. They, they, every dot had to be, every I had to be dotted, every T had to be stroked. Everything, every point had to be followed. And if it wasn't clear, well, then they added to it. They supersized the command. Yeah, there's a command about cleanliness and outward washing. But for the Pharisees, that wasn't enough. You had to be even more apparent. So everything became magnified in their view. So instead of just washing your hands and keeping, they washed the entire arm. And then they took and they washed the entire other arm. And then they took the holy cleansed bucket and they put it over themselves and cleansed their hair and shook it. And were very theatrical. Look how clean I am. Look how holy I am. How serious I take these commands. But yet we're told in the scriptures that though they were Outward, clean. Paul accuses them of being whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Outwardly they looked clean. Outwardly they looked perfect. But if you were to look inside, they were full of corruption and deadness and rottenness. There was no internal righteousness. It was only an external image. A facade, a pretending. And so... Under the old dispensation, under the old law, under the old covenant, it was possible to be outwardly righteous but inwardly unrighteous. You could do all that was required of you but yet lacking an inward reality. And the writer here wants people to see, or the reader, or the speaker, wants people to see that there is a, a new reality. That under this new covenant, this new thing that Christ has brought in, it's no longer like the old, it's greater than the old. Because Christ gives life to the inner man. He brings a person alive, alive to God. Indeed, he says that Jesus has been given a superior ministry and that he is the mediator of a better covenant, a better relationship. When this week when I was looking at this and I was looking at the, the word covenant and the mediator of a better covenant, one of the titles that is, belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the mediator of a better covenant. And I was thinking, well, Covenant, who is that between? Because we think of biblical covenants as being an, an arrangement between two parties. But in one of, the co uh, one of the commentaries that I was reading, it explained it as a, think of it not as a bargain, as an accommodation between two parties, but think of it rather as a will. A person 
who writes a will in the same sense that's a covenant it's a legal document and there is only one person responsible in that legal document it is the writer of the will and when he writes the will he bequeaths gives his earthly goods his wealth to those who are following as in who are not dead obviously you can't leave your stuff to someone who's dead you leave it to your children or to your Friends, servants, slaves, I don't know who you have. But you understand the principle. The one leaves stuff to another. And they explained in that commentary that here in this use of language, Jesus is the one bequeathing these things to us. He is giving them over to us. It is a single party covenant in that sense. He is the giver and we are the receiver. All we can do is either receive, thank you very much for it, or say no to it. Christ has given us a better. In the old, a man had to work, had to show himself, had to hold on to somehow the outward premises and perhaps the inward reality. But in this, one simply receives that which is given. He is the mediator, the giver, the one who stands between us and God of a better covenant. That covenant is a, a giving of life, which has been established on better promises. Again, when I was looking at this, I was like, the word promise. Sadly, in our generation, a promise doesn't mean very much, does it? We have a very low view of promise everyone breaks their promises don't they that's you know i promise never to bite my nails again i promise to go to the gym sarah i promise to do this and then we don't do it a week or two happens and blah 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 we have a very low view of what the word promise means and i was thinking lord is this what what are the promises now obviously it means a promise made by god but also it means a surety when you bought your house or whatever you did and you had a person stand instead of the bank, I promise that if he doesn't pay his loan, you can take this which belongs to me. You understand that? There's someone was, I can't remember the word in Swedish, but you understand what I mean. It begins with B. I don't remember what it is, but, but yeah. thank you, John. And they promised to give up their wealth to cover yours. There was a promise. An assurance. Of payment. An assurance. That you would be covered. And it's this again. That our salvation. The covenant which has been given to you and I. Which you and I are partakers of. Was established. Through better promises. That the blood of Christ. Not the blood of bulls or goats or pigeons or something else. Not some dead animal. Not some vain promise of good works or earthly wealth. But the actual death, the actual blood, the actual life force of our Lord Jesus Christ purchased that. That's the assurance. That's the security that holds our place in God's covenant. You have what you have because Jesus Christ said, in order that they might receive eternal life, here's my blood. Here's my life. This is the better. And I, the word better, I went through this deep dive on the word better. It's ridiculous the things you can look at when you, you have time. It doesn't mean it's just slightly better. You know, you, have, you go to the grocery store and you have two. In, in, in Prisma, you have a choice of two things, you know. In the United States, or even in Ireland, you go to and they have whole, whole, uh, go for looking for a, a box of rice or something. And in Finland, you have two or three, you know, pirka and something else and something else. In Ireland, they have an entire, like, shelf, just all different kinds of rice. So when he's saying it's a better 
Promise. You, it's not like you're going and you say, well, which, which one is better? You know, well, this one has got more, but this one's cheaper. You know, I am in my house. If it doesn't have a yellow lap on it, you can't buy it. That's the kind of thing. You know? Which one? It's not that. It's not like which one is kind of better. It's the word is superior, greater. Uh, something that is not real and something that is real. So, so, so far superior that I, I used the, the illustration last week. Of one is a gun, a Nerf gun. You imagine all the soldiers going to war in Ukraine and you say, well, here's a Nerf gun. Or here's an AR-15, that's the only gun I know, or SAC or whatever they call it, I don't know. You know? Which one is better for doing your job? Nah. And obviously the soldier who's going to fight in a real war is going to take the real weapon. Why? Because it's a better weapon. It is a real weapon. They look the same, kind of. They both fire projectiles. They both have the shape and form of a weapon. But one does actually what it's supposed to do, that is to kill, to injure, to maim. And the other is a child's toy. So the idea here again is that our covenant, the covenant that has been given to us, is established not on earthly things, not on temporary things, but established on the precious Blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it took to provide you with the opportunity to have salvation. And then the speaker, the writer, the pastor who's communicating to his people. He begins in verse 7. And he begins now to open up the idea of this new covenant. He begins to demonstrate and to unfold in the minds of the people why and how the waffle? He says here in the, in the very verse in the, in the verse seven. For if that first covenant had been faultless, and let's just stop there. Faultless doesn't mean that there were errors in it. It means the word there means that there were limits to it. That it could take so far. But no further. That those earthly means and methods, those temple appearances, visits, those giving up of animals, the killing of them, the eating of the, the Pasha meal, the, the atonement meal, and whatever those things, they could not atone for sin. They could take you so far, but they could not take you all the way. Why? Because we understood that it was an outward thing and not an inward thing. It didn't have the ability to change your heart nor your mind. It was a symbol of that which was to come. It was, a, again, a shadow, a copy, a type, an illustration of the sacrifice that would be made for mankind. That superior sacrifice, that superior covenant that was to come our Lord Jesus Christ and he's pointing them from the temple worship he's pointing them from the traditions of Israel he's pointing them to the Lord Jesus Christ his life his death and the continuation on how do we believe after Christ Remember, they were in a position where they were being put out of the temple. Per persecution, I was going to say percolation. No. Per persecution. Persecution was percolating within the church. Ah. That the Jews were beginning to turn upon the, the Christian Jews. We see this, don't we, in Paul's time. Paul, before he became Paul, was Saul. And they were persecuting the Jews, the Christian Jews. Men like Saul. And it's thought that Saul was only one of many sort of inquisitors who went throughout the land searching out these Nazarite sects. 
They were looking for them. Paul wasn't the only one. Saul who became Paul wasn't the only one. There was a tremendous stirring within the nation. It was like a, a purification and an inquisition where they were trying to purge their nation of the cult of Jesus Christ. And as a result, the people were being put out. They were having to pay the cost. They were having to carry the weight of their own sufferings. That Jesus was dividing, or faith in Jesus Christ was dividing households, family groups. People were having to decide who were they going to follow, Jesus, or were they just going to you know, fit in? Worship, believe in Jesus quietly and privately so no one could see or know. And it wouldn't offend the people around them. They just kind of, oh. And they were being intimidated. They were being made afraid that they would lose their livelihoods, that they would be put out of the synagogue. And I've told you before, that wasn't a little thing. That was being cut off. The only place you could go was to be with the Gentiles. For a Jew, that was, a, that was just like you know, going to Mars. Be like us going to Russia and trying to fit in there. Not knowing the language or the culture. Not knowing how to communicate. So distant, so far were the Jews from the Gentile culture. So this first covenant was not faultless. It had its limitations. And he says here, there would have been no occasion for a second one. Again, he's saying, if the first one had been able to make us right with God, if there had been any chance, an opportunity for us to be, be able to be reconciled with God through the circumcision, through the rites and ceremonies and rituals of Judaism, God would not have needed to bring a second one in. Because the first one was limited. Earthly religion is limited. Earthly signs and symbols are limited. They can never take you to heaven. Baptizing your baby is not enough to save that child. Raising up your hand in a Sunday meeting and asking Jesus, praying a prayer, Oh Lord Jesus, I have sinned against you. Please come into my heart. Transform me and change me. Amen. I said the prayer and I am saved. It's not enough. It's not enough. There needs to be an, a work of heaven done within you. Yes, you need to look to the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Yes, you need to cry out to him. Yes, you need to ask him. Not just into your heart, but into your life. You need to make him your Lord and saviour. Where you become his disciple every day, all day, for the rest of your days, are you his? There's no going back. There's no turning back from the ply when you follow Jesus. It's all the way. Do or die. You become his. But we're told here that the first couldn't save us. And that there needed to be a second. And then it says here, finding fault with his people, he says. Again, the speaker, the writer, the one who is communicating, he's showing us that these, this is coming from God. This is not his opinion. You ever had that? You're talking to someone and they say, well, that's your opinion. You say, well, the Bible says, and well, that's your opinion. I had this discussion at Christmas time about female preachers. In my kitchen while I was taking wine glasses down from the, and the person behind me in her house said, oh, she's such a wonderful pastor. And I said, what are you going to do? What are you going to do in that situation? You're dying of It's Christmas. We're supposed to be celebrating. And you know me, I can't. This thing here, it's my disability. Well, you know, actually the Bible says, well, that's your opinion. Nah, it's scripture. You rhyme off the scriptures, of course. Yes, but I just don't believe it means that. I said, well, that's it, your opinion. But what it says is this. The writer is doing exactly that. 
He says, not I say. He says. He has said. And then he quotes from Jeremiah 31, the longest Old Testament quote in all of the New Testament. I was about to say in all the Bible, but that would be foolish, wouldn't it? Because the Old Testament is full of Old Testament quotes. This is the, the longest single Old Testament quote in the New Testament. Probably one of the most important. Here, he's allowing God to speak for himself. And I love it. He doesn't even explain it. He doesn't pull the book. He says, this is what God has said. So plain and straightforward and in your face. I don't even need to explain what God is saying here. Because once you hear him, you will know. Kind of takes away the, the point of being a pastor who has to preach the text, you know. Might just read it to you and leave it there. Ha 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 ha. But we can't do that. We're not allowed to do that. We must explain scripture. But finding fault. Again, God found fault. He found that the Old Testament was limited. He recognized that there was a limitation in the old. In the man-centered religion. I do this, therefore God must do that. I give this, therefore God must give me. God, you cannot judge me because I've got every I dotted and every T stroked. And everything's in the right place. <laughs> I've got you where I want you. Trusting in our own merits. And yet, God found fault with the old system of merit. The old system of doing things in a right way. That it couldn't reach the inward. And then he says, see the days are coming, says the Lord. Very powerful statement. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. See the days are coming, says the Lord. Says the Lord. He doesn't refer to it, it doesn't say in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 31. If they had chapter 31, they, of course they didn't. He just simply recognizes that this is God speaking and this is God doing. The days are coming. And we would say, the day is coming and is here. God has established this. God has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. See, there in Jeremiah's time, during the time of the, the exile... They were looking forward. They were looking through time to the promise of the, the thing that was to come. They were looking forward to that moment when Christ would come. You and I are looking back. You and I see with clear glasses. We recognize and understand. But here, he's pointing out to these these people, we're in those days. We are living in that time. And you and I are living in that time. This time has come and is here. Says the Lord. This is something that is established by God. Not by man. God has said that he will do this. I will. When I will. Who is doing it? Is it a, an, an act of man? Are we conjoling or forcing? Ah, go on, God. You know you'll want to. Ah, go on, save someone. Come on. Ah, you better save him. You better save him, God. You better do it. Because I'll be, I'll be cross. I'll cry. I remember once I had a discussion with a group of people and there was a lady there and she was trying to convince me that baby baptism was a real and relevant practice in the New Testament and that Christians had to practice baby baptism and all of her children had been baptized. And she said to me, began to weep. She began to weep. And they weren't real tears. They were crocodile tears. It was just a lady trying to... It's like one of the little kids. You know the little kids that cry? You know, they... We all know whose kids do that. But all of our kids have done it at one point. 
Some of us have wives who still do that. Oh, oh, give me what I want or I'll cry. And this lady tried to conjole me, force me, bully me by tears. Are you saying that we have sinned against God by baptizing our children? I said, I don't know if it's a sin, but certainly you've done the wrong thing. And she wailed and cried. And everybody looked at me and said, oh, Kyle, you're such a bad man. Bad man making this poor woman cry. It's not me, it is the scriptures. God has said, not Kyle has said. Who said it? The Lord himself. He said, I will make. This new covenant is something that God said that he would do, has done. And we are in at this present moment. Such a certainty. Such a reality in which we are living. You and I are new covenant believers. We are held not by our own efforts, but we are held by the efforts of God on our behalf. He who died and gave us his blood on our behalf. Sometimes it's really hard to believe that. Sometimes it's really hard to be at peace with that. That Jesus Christ died with you in mind. You're not just a nameless face in the crowd. You're not just a, a, an accident. You kind of slipped in, you know, like, oh, like a lottery, you know. But with forethought and purpose, Jesus Christ died for you. That your sins might be forgiven. That they might be blotted out from the memory of God. That he might see them no more for forever. Think about that. If you are like me and you're very conscious of your own sins. You're very conscious of your own failings. The older you get, beloved, I know that I'm the oldest man here. The oldest person here. And I have more sins than all of you put together. The older you get, the more aware you become. The more real they are. The more eternity seems far off because you realize your own unworthiness. You think, how could God ever love me? How could God ever be at peace with me? How could God ever... And you want to kind of pisk yourself. Isn't that what it says in Syria? You want to kind of flagellate yourself and say, Oh Lord, look, I know I'm unworthy, but I'm trying to be worthy. Beloved, if you are in the new covenant, Christ has cleansed you of all your sin from past, present and future. That's no excuse for you to sin. But it is a reality in which you are living. Everything... All things, your conscious sins and your unconscious sins, those things that you know you've done and you've done deliberately. And all those things, perhaps, that are worse than the things that you know about. Sins of omission, which I think are always the worst. Well, I didn't know. How can I be guilty? Try and tell that to the the, the state. I didn't know there was a law that I couldn't have bird eggs. Isn't that what the man said when he got accused from Narpes? I didn't know there was a law which. Mm, 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 mm. And he still was sentenced. Because the state doesn't care. You have broken the law. You will be punished. Oh, I, didn't, I didn't know there was a traffic sign there. I didn't know the, the speed limit went from 180, 60 to 80 in 500 meters. I didn't see that, that traffic camera there. I didn't know there was. The, the policeman will not care. But there was and you did and now you are and now you will. And you are found guilty. Jesus Christ died with you in mind in order that you might be reconciled with God, to God and have peace with him for eternity. Hallelujah, praise God, amen. That should bring joy to you. For you know your lack of worth. You know your inability to maintain or keep his law in thought, word, and deed. The things you think and then the things that come out of your mind or mouth and the things you do. Condemn us. Oh gosh, could you imagine if people could hear the things that went on inside our heads? We'd be, oh, no one would ever speak to us again. I'd be in jail. Oh my goodness. Or if they could see the 
the thoughts, the, not just what we say, not our inward monologue, or sometimes dialogue, depending who you are. But those things we envision, those things we look at, those things that we do in our imagination and our fantasy, could you imagine if those things were portrayed before all mankind, before the people here? Oh dear, how unworthy we would be. And yet despite all of that, despite all of our shortcomings, our faults, our failings, Christ died with us in mind that we might have peace with God, that we might be renewed and receive a new heart and a new mind. I will make a new covenant. God has made that new covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ and is giving out life to all who would have it. For all who would receive it, it's available to us. In, under the old covenant, who, who, who were the ones? Who were the ones who were the recipients of it? It was to Abraham and to his children. It was to the, those from whom God brought out of Egypt, wasn't it? You and I, in the parts of the world, some of us from Ireland, some of us from South Africa, some of us from Finland, some of us from Sweden, we would never have known about that or been a part, part of that. I have no, as far as I know, I've no Jewish ancestry in my, my reign. I am 100% Celt. Irish all the way through. Squeeze me and Irish blood drops out. That's who I am. My ancestors, as far as I know, never were in the promised land. God never spoke to one of my ancestry. I had no part or parcel, no inclusion in God's promises. I was outside the kingdom of heaven. I was not a citizen of God's people, of God's kingdom. And yet by his grace, yet by his mercy, yet by the fullness of his plans, through Israel, through this new covenant, God has burst Christ into the world, the great light, that even we, the Gentiles, might see and know and recognize and be drawn to. It is, we have now been included, we, the children of Abraham, who are by faith, Galatians 3. We are now able to come to God. But we don't come again according to our own merit, not because of what our parents, not because of any promise that has been made to you or to your people. We come because of Christ's deliberate act on our behalf. Jesus Christ chose you. God the Father chose you before the foundation of the earth. Before even God spoke, let there be light. You were in the mind of God. Christ had decided that he would go to the cross for you. This is the covenant in which we live. Which we are parties of. We have received it. There's no limitations to it. There's no conditions to it. If you're a good girl, you'll get a candy. Woo if you're a good girl or boy, on Friday, you'll get your reward. Sad so thing is, none of us can be a good boy or a good girl. None of us are consistent. Only in our inconsistency are we consistent. Only in our failure are we successful. This covenant that we have received, that we are a part of, it was done by God on our behalf. The faith that we have received is from God. It's not our faith. It's by faith you have been saved in that. It is a gift of God, not of yourselves, lest any man boast. Everything we have been given is a result of this covenant, this leaving to us, this agreement between the Trinity in the Godhead. We will give them life. It says here, that I will make this covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. 
I showed no concern from them for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. I like where it says, and I took them by the hand. In one of the Greek translations, or it says, I took them by my hand. There's a bit of debate there. I took them by the hand, or with my hand I took them. It's the idea again that God delivered Israel from bondage. And in the same way God delivered them then, God in this new covenant is delivering his people. He's again demonstrating the the faultiness, the limitations of the old and the superiority of the new. Because under the conditions of the old, they faltered and they fell, says there, because they did not continue in my covenant. Well, Kyle, then, can, can, can we not continue in that covenant? Are we liable to fall away? Does God turn his face away from us? Well, let me say, well, he says, I showed no concern for them because they did not continue in my covenant. It's like God let them go. The f- problem wasn't with the covenant. The fault, the limitations were not in the covenant, but the limitations were in the heart of man. You see, again, you had the outward, the illustration, the type, the shadow. But it had no ability to pierce the heart, to change a man, to make him different. To birth him, to rebirth him, to give spiritual life to him. The old Covenant with its law was a day as a schoolmaster. It was to be an instructor to show you that your sin prevented you from entering into heaven and that you needed a sacrifice on your behalf. Under the old, the people did not continue in observance, at least outward or inward. And we know that temple observance was tiny in comparison to the size of the nation. We think of all of Israel kind of going up to Jerusalem on the feast days. And the truth is, it wasn't that way. There was a remnant, but it wasn't the entire nation. The entire nation was more nominal than it was true believing or even outwardly observant. Indeed, the, the Pharisees called themselves the Pharisees. Why? Because... They were an ultra-radical, fundamentalist sect within Israel. Their name means the circumcised, the cut off, the, the pure and the holy, the remnant. And they saw themselves as the only true Israel. Yet even them and all of their observance did not continue in the law. They did not continue in keeping Because they could not, would not. Their willful unbelief. They perverted, converted the law of God to a system that served themselves. They used God for their own benefits. They were among those who, in the letter of Jude tells us, made merchandise of the church of God. Beloved, we are in the days of the new covenant. We are in the days when we, we are not required by God to be ritualizing things or to give sacrifices or to be obedient to any kind of ceremonies in order to win God's favor. God's favor has been won for us, not by our actions or by the actions of our forefathers, but by God's actions in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is the mediator of a greater covenant, the superior, the supreme covenant. That which was established through better or more supreme or the supreme, the real promises. That is that Jesus has given himself on our behalf. That he stands as an assurance of our relationship with God. For as long as he remains 
so our relationship with God remains safe. For as long as he stands, metaphorically so, at the right hand of the Father, acting as a high priest. And remember, the Bible has said, he has said, you will be a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. God let the old pass away in order to establish the new. You and I live in that new. You and I are New Testament Christians. Let's not behave like Old Testament Christians. Old Testament believers who think that just because they come to church, just because they uh, read their Bible, just because they might occasionally say something to someone about something Christian, that God is going to love them more. The love of God has been secured for you. You are His people called by His name. His stamp and seal is upon you. There is no conditions except that you abide in Him and He abides in you. And that will always happen because it was him who has done this work. Not you, not me. Let's rejoice in that. Let us be strong in our faith. We must always be reminded, sharpened, quickened, exhorted to look unto Jesus. To sit securely in him. To abide in him and his works on our behalf. We are not Old Testament. It was, it was uh, John Calvin who said about the human heart that it is an idol-making factory. Just spitting out idols all day long. Just wanting to believe in this. Wanting to believe in that. Wanting to believe in our own goodness. Wanting to believe in the pastor. Wanting to believe in the denomination. Wanting to believe in even in the Bible. I've read the Bible. It keeps me safe. It is only Jesus Christ. And Christ alone. He said, well, I don't believe in him all that much. I, I believe in him, but you know, I can't say that I'm a super believer. I love super believers. I really believe. How much do you believe? I really believe. I really believe. You know? Okay. All right. How much faith did Jesus said that you need to move a mountain? How much mustard seed? Do you know mustard seed is like a salt corn? You know, like a, a tiny, tiny, tiny black thing. Little tiny thing. How much faith must you need to, to receive salvation? Tiny, tiny, tiny. Because it's not from you, it's from Him. He doesn't look at you and think, okay, grading this, this, you know, different categories of faithful believer, super believer, super believer. Stomp Him with an egg. Super, I love this guy. Then it goes through the category, you know, all right, mediocre, log them, you know, and then goes down the list, and then it's you. Ah, uh, maybe. Well, that's how often we see ourselves, isn't it? Our humility puts us at the end, super believers, and then we're way down here with the Apostle Paul, is just the next one to us. Remember, he said he was the chief of all sinners. When you and Paul are kind of arm wrestling, he's the chief of all sinners. Oh, Paul, if you only knew my sins. Paul's like, let me tell you about sin. Beloved, Christ has us. He has us in the palm of his hand. We are carried by him and not by our own efforts. Free your mind. Lift up your eyes. Look away from yourself and all your own failings and inconsistencies and faults. Let them all go. Let the guilt of it all go. Trust in Him. Trust in Him. Because it's not how you feel about yourself or how you judge yourself. Look at Jesus Christ and judge Him. Look at Jesus Christ and value Him and say, Ha I hide myself in Thee. Don't look at me. Look at Jesus. I think we have Jesus. No, I don't think we have Jesus' mask and we get to heaven. But you understand... When God looks at us, he sees his beloved son. Our guilt has been taken away. Our shame has been removed. Our faults and shortcomings have all just evaporated. And all is left is the righteousness of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. 
God sees Jesus in us. The Spirit of God that lives within us. And today, though we might not see the reality, there is coming a day when Christ returns or we shall be taken up. We die and go to heaven. When we live in the reality of that, the fullness, our glorification shall happen. And we shall live in the fullness of this new covenant. So beloved again, remember that you're a new covenant Christian. Remember that God has done a work in you. Unlike that which was done in the old system of, are you good enough or are you not? Too much Old Testament Christianity in our minds still. Too few of us live in the reality of sins forgiven. My chains are gone. I am free. Beloveds, let's leave it there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask of you, help us. Lord, help us. For all too often we recognize and realize that we are Old Testament Christians in our form and function. That we are still judging ourselves and others by their worthiness or by a system of beliefs. Lord, far too often we, have the, we live on that scale of super Christian and retrograde. And we put ourselves down there with the Apostle Paul as being the chief of all sinners. Yet, Lord, help us to repent of that. Help us, Lord, to put that aside and to look unto Jesus, to recognize that He and He alone is worthy and that He and He alone has won your favor and that it is by Him and through Him that we have received this new covenant, this inheritance. Lord, Let us hide ourselves in you. Let us rest in you. Lord, set us free and close our ears to the whispering of the serpent. Did God say, help us to trust in your word. The Bible says, he has said, I will. Oh God, help us to trust in in your great statement that you will and you have and that we are. Oh Lord. We ask this for your glory. Lord, and for those who do not know you, we ask once again, Lord, that they might be aware, that they might know that, Lord, they need a Savior, that one day they must stand before you. One day, Lord, they will pass from this life into the next and must live for eternity after that. And where shall they spend eternity? Safe in the arms of Christ or lost forever in the halls of darkness? Oh, Lord, we pray, we ask of you, we cry out unto you, Lord, move in great mercy. Lord, we ask this for your own name's sake. Amen.